for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chut-free or perhaps one that came directly from us, there is Liberation Martial Arts Online. Thanks to Wendy Canal, Yoshi Silverstein, and Don Schuldenfrey for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online, or you just want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. And this is Southpaw. This episode was sponsored by Chad Loader, S.H., M. Shelton, Berkshire People's Gem, and New Guy. Just a heads up, since this is an episode about trauma, there will be discussion about sexual assault. Be advised. For this episode of Southpaw, we have Off The Zone. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. To start off, can one of you tell us what Off The Zone is and what the significance of that name is? I think the significance of Off The Zone is that you are kind of out of your comfort zone. So you dare to do like a bit against the grain, but like in a way where you want to have positive impact on others. And what is the Off The Zone project? The Off The Zone project helps uh, fellow martial arts coaches and athletes to become trauma-informed so that martial arts schools in general um, can become more trauma-informed because many um, deal with mental health and many also go to martial arts for many reasons, either because of previous assault or bullying or because, you know, want to be more confident. And then they meet coaches that do not understand that at all. They're maybe very skilled and that's what they teach but do not understand that for some, they need a little bit different things. The work looks different before they also can train hard. And that's what Off The Zone teaches fellow martial artists. So let's start with introductions from both of you and how this all started. Um, sure. I'm Alex. Um, I'm doing martial arts since I was a kid. Um, I found a certificate where I was a yellow belt in judo with six years old and um, around age 15 i started teaching um, traditional yuyutsu and yeah i met Lorene on the mat we were both white belts uh, starting out in brazilian jiu-jitsu and um, by now we are married and uh, we we have our own martial arts school in munich um, it's team Lorene and alex and the reason we founded our own school was, um, yeah, we had a martial arts instructor, um, who was, um, basically dating every lady in the gym. And we didn't want to expose the youth we were already teaching back then, um, to this coach because we wanted to have them protected when they turn 18. Um, because yeah, who knows? We, we didn't don't believe he would have done anything before that, but can never be sure, but especially, um, yeah, when they turn of age. So 
that's the main reason we, we founded our own school. And uh, we realized that in the industry, there is a lot of, of teaching um, going wrong in, in so many ways and uh, so many gray areas. And we wanted to um, yeah, clear that up. And that's why we founded Off The Zone. And even waiting to the age of consent, right? If you knew them from childhood, that in itself is a problem because there's the grooming involved and also like the power dynamic, even if you're an adult where it's the instructor, there's a lot going on there, right? There's absolutely a lot going on because he was also um, definitely harassing me that he wanted to be between my legs, which I always said no. And um, especially when Alex and I started dating, he really, for him, it was kind of like a, a race who comes between my legs first, would really, you know, ask me to go on his seminar tour with him, even though he still had an official kind of girlfriend. He even said like, oh, there's this team dinner, which wasn't true, but just to get me like um, off guard. Uh, I used to have uh, my own massage kind of practice. So sometimes people came over and I would just like help them there. It was just like a never awkward and also with the other gender. But one time he kind of, uh, invited himself as well and started kissing me and I kicked him out. And ever since kind of like the bullying started and uh, when Alex and I came together, then Alex also became bullied by him because, well, so that's just kind of like where we were like, this is not, we love the art, but we don't love this. So then we just decided as, as like baby bluebells to just found our own school. So it was a matter of almost survival. Like you were forced into starting your own thing and you had to do it at Bluebells, because ideally you don't want to start a school at Bluebell. Nope. Well, let me start with this then. Introduce yourself and kind of explain how Bluebells start an academy. All right. So, well, my name is Laurine and uh, I have been sexually assaulted when I was a minor and people were like, hollering, you need to actually pick and blame me, but saying like, yeah, you need to, to learn how to defend yourself. And well, I thought, sure, why not? So I started then with at one point Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And my first coach didn't understand PTSD at all. So he just let these, I'm, I'm tiny and these big guys, he just let them all go over me. I was the only girl I was weighing like 48 kilo at, at, at the time. And I just cried every time on the way back home because it was just too much. It was re-traumatizing. Yeah. In the beginning of Jiu-Jitsu, you just survive. Like you have no tools really to survive. But that changed when I studied in Oxford and there, that school was just different. I don't think it was necessarily trauma-informed, but they just understood that smaller bodies may have different needs and there I also started with yoga and my first yoga teacher she was a trauma-informed teacher and that kind of changed everything and set the put in seats for me that I thought okay so martial arts and jiu-jitsu can also be a lot of fun then I moved to Munich and then I met Alex then on the mats and uh, Alex was then already teaching uh, in a local club traditional jiu-jitsu and when we got our blue belt we also started then there already teaching BJJ because he had a lot of upcoming kids and youth and they really did well in competition. So we already had like a BJ group, so to speak, that we taught. And since Alex already wanted always to go professional uh, because he has also done a black belt in traditional jiu-jitsu, like he always wanted that. So when we just felt so bullied and we're like, no, we can do better. We can make, create a safe space for, for women. We as baby blue belts then decided to just take a leap of faith and just do it. What happens when you start a school as blue belts? You have to find kind of like a affiliation, somebody to 
sponsor your school, right? As far as like rankings and all that goes. So how does that work? So um, I'm originally from the Netherlands and um, I started also in the Netherlands and my brother is now current brown belt in the Netherlands. He was then purple belt. And he said like, why not talk to my head coaches? So we did. And uh, so now our head coach is Cadu Francis. Uh, in San, he's based in San Diego, Jiu-Jitsu Foundation. And he, uh, yeah, he listened to our story and what we were looking for. And of course, also wrote to us, we, we visited him. So it, it all worked out. He believed in uh, what we stood for. And he also believed in our Jiu-Jitsu. So yeah, that's, uh, it, was, it took a while to find you know, the, right, the right team for us and, and, and vice versa. But that's in short how we found our, yeah, our head coach. Tell me about, from your experience now that you're teaching and running this program, how common it is for female students to have had a similar experience as you with sexual harassment, whether it's from the instructor or from fellow students. I think, unfortunately, too often. Of course, I have to say now with Off The Zone, I get many more stories. So also because people sort me out. So I have to add this bias. But still, um, internationally, there are just so many that have so many stories that are very similar. Like there's like specific patterns that you just see time and time again. Um, so unfortunately, it's more common than we would like. Also, how common is it to come to BJJ or martial arts in general after the trauma has happened? Because the way it's always framed is like, you come here to prevent this, but maybe that's not always the case. Uh, my experience is actually quite uh, usually through self-defense courses. It can either be BJJ related or like a bit more striking, but often they start with uh, a self-defense course or self-defense training and then like, okay, cool, I, I want to continue. But for many, it's still very hard. So what's a common scenario is that they get triggered, they either freeze or they start crying and then they feel shame. So sometimes they then just get up, go into the locker room, men or kids as well by the way we speak now about women and um yeah there there's no the coach they don't nobody really knows what to do like but, but when there's a physical injury we usually know what to do but we don't may, most coaches don't when it's kind of say a mental first aid situation and um i think that's really what we need the same when you talk about children on the spectrum like they there are also moments where they need something right and if you understand how that works and you can tailor to those needs you create a very safe and fun training environment. It's often um, when you when you have someone who freezes during sparring, say uh, someone is mount on them and the bottom person freezes, um, then it's often like, oh, toughen up, keep on fighting, you need to get out, get out, get out. But um, often people don't, like coaches don't take the, the pause and are like, okay, let's stop right here. Are you okay? What happened? Because especially when it's a, a new student that can have so many reasons this, this uh, person froze. And um, I think, uh, yeah, martial arts coaches in general are not aware uh, that it's just not that this person is not tough enough, but that there is, um, there might be much more behind it. So a lot of coaches and instructors are talking about prevention, not realizing that there's a lot of people already here who are coming here because they've already had trauma and they're just not recognizing it. Yes, plus they are also extremely vulnerable because, I mean, already going to, to a new school or starting something new is already super scary, regardless of whether you have trauma or not. It's a big step. And then when you have additional baggage, 
that's just really a, a, a lot of work. And especially when you enter a school where coaches see the ladies as their personal dating pools, like they're already extremely vulnerable. So I know many stories where women start in martial arts because they uh, experience domestic violence. They are very vulnerable. Uh, the, they get groomed often then by coaches because, yeah, they're kind of easy targets and then they end into the next cycle of abuse. That's like extremely common. It's really sad. And um, I think that we have to understand that, yes, there are also women that just love fighting and, you know, there's not nothing, they don't struggle with their mental health per se, but a lot of women do and are also therefore extremely vulnerable. So I think as a coach, you should be aware of that vulnerability. And we've been using this term, but could one of you define what grooming means? So grooming is when somebody, usually when there's a power imbalance, step-by-step step, uh, works, uh, manipulates another person into, in the end, doing what they want or also in becoming dependent of them. So grooming can look like, um, say, I would start, that's kind of like, I, I, that's how I was groomed. I didn't work out with how it started. It's like these little things, a little touch on the shoulder, always wanted to give me kisses, super happy to see me, asking how I was doing, things that, on its own, do not necessarily look like very suspicious, but it's therefore also very hard to prove. But it continued. Then it was like, oh, would you like to go with me doing this? Would you like, oh, could you help me with that? Step by step, I was doing more and more and more work, or I tried to, that I would do more and more work. Then at one point, he shows up in my house. It was very hard also for me to say no because I felt really taken off guard. Um, it's like how they step by step gain in and they just go over your boundaries step by step and it's very sometimes you don't even realize it until kind of something that happens and then it's often also very hard then to say no because of the i know i remember myself that when he then started kissing me i knew like i'm like oh my god it's like first of all i got scared because i'm tiny he was huge i'm kind of like if he really wants something for me there's it would be hard for me to prevent that physically two i also thought what when i go back tomorrow to class what does this mean do i now be kicked out um, what happens? I finally start making nice connections with other fellow students. So they have this power. You also don't want to be seen as a drama queen. You also you don't want to, um, yeah, create trouble. And that's all these things that they kind of have over you. And also, the person doing the grooming might not even be aware that what they're doing is grooming. But just because they don't know that it's grooming does not make it okay. And just because they don't know does not mean it's not grooming, right? Because they're not going to say they're a groomer, right? Just like racists don't say they're racist, but that doesn't mean that what they're doing is not racism or what they're doing is not sexual harassment. Yeah, I think even the, the whether they are aware or not, um, even if they are aware, but they are like, yeah, but I'm doing nothing wrong. I'm just being nice. So there's the, the gaslighting. And indeed, it's not important whether they are aware or not. And it's also, there's also the big difference between is it illegal or is it uh, just not acceptable? Is it just wrong? Or like inappropriate. Inappropriate. Thank you. And usually um, they are like, yeah, it's, it's legal, but it's still inappropriate. And I think uh, to make that difference clear is just very important. Yeah, we say always that the moment, like we can say behaviors can already long become or be inappropriate before it becomes illegal. And when you are a gym owner, you get to decide what kind of behaviors 
you find appropriate or not. Like you don't have to wait until a woman definitely gets raped or something, a, a criminal offense before you act. When you see that there are these steps that woman gets attention she does not want and it doesn't stop, even though um, it's not something classified by law yet that it's criminal, doesn't mean you have to tolerate it. Being toxic, having a toxic training environment is not illegal, right? But that does not mean it's not toxic. And I think there's another point that needs to be raised is when it is brought up, then the fact that they're resisting it, right? Maybe they weren't aware, but now that you're making them aware and they're resisting that knowledge, that in itself is saying something, right? Absolutely. And interestingly enough, um, women do play a big role also in that because when we left, um, I got more support from men than from women, especially those I know were also victims. So I know that it, it's because the, I also spoke with some close friends of my women and they also said like there are, there are women that go to start a martial art to find their black belt husbands. They exist. They are there as well. It's often not talked about. It's kind of like a taboo thing, but I think it's very important to address this as well because with, with my experience, for instance, is that um, even though I was already with Alex, um, the coach would still sometimes touch me in certain ways that other girls would get jealous and start bullying me, even though I didn't want any of that. Um, but they were fighting kind of each other to get his attention. And this is also a pattern I heard more often from other women that this happens in, in, in the gym. So it's also like when you have another example was there is a woman that likes flirting. And so another guy started really flirting back. And then another female coach said to this, to, this, to this other male student, like, okay, she may like it, but please do not mistake that every woman wants this. So I think there is what makes it difficult is that there are women that do kind of like it or want this sort of gray area toxicness. And there are women that just come like me. I just come to train jiu-jitsu. Like that's, I don't want to be bothered otherwise. Um, so I think it's, it's, um, we need to look at both to, to, to find a solution and to hold each other accountable. In all systems of oppression, there's always the people who are complicit that enable this, right? I think when we zoom out and think of it in bigger systems of oppression. They're not necessarily compradors, but there's a term for that, right? People within the group who help facilitate this to continue to happen to the group, right? So this isn't new. In fact, the fact that there is a pattern reinforces that this is something that does happen. Yep, exactly. Let's say they didn't have any sexual assault or something traumatic happening, but then sometimes martial arts becomes the thing that is traumatizing. Not just with sexual assault. We've already talked about that, but I've met people who've been traumatized who won't go back to martial arts because they got bullied. It could be men or women, or they just got smashed really bad, or they got injured really bad in their first month. And now they're just terrified of any rolling situation because it triggers that injury or it triggers that moment of them getting smashed by somebody, right? Can you speak a little bit about that? The trauma that sometimes like martial arts inflicts because they're thinking like they're trying to toughen you up. Yeah, I think that people should understand that there are so many ways of toughening up. Like there are people that sometimes need a kick in the butt, you know, sometimes they're challenging you and okay. But there are also people that they're toughening up actually just means that you need to help them feel safe. Because the moment that the, you know, the, that the nervous system feels safe, that's the moment that you learn. And the toughening up can really come in many shapes and sizes. Um, I, I remember myself, like I... Um, the second class in, in, in Munich, I was like, like a beginner white belt. There, there was this female blue belt and she just wrist locked me super hard, even though their wrist locks are really not allowed when you're like a white belt. And I didn't see it coming. It really hurt me. And I was really shocked. And um, 
I was really for a very long time super afraid of wrist locks because that really hurt. And I think it was so unnecessary. And I think that um, what you can do is to, when you have new students, pair them up with students that don't have ego issues, tell them what to anticipate, explain to them how you have, how a typical classroom or training is, explain them about sparring. But most of all, pair them up with people that help them get the feel for what it's like instead of that they think, oh, cool, we have new meat that we can smash. I, I also think um, like sometimes people, um, and that's I think the old school way of selling jujitsu is like you smash them so hard that they are like, oh, wow, I want to learn that too. <laughs> and those people that kind of are impressed by that, they continue. And the rest, yeah, goodbye. I don't want to deal with you, kind of. And um, I believe that um, it's not it's not necessary. I think uh, that jiu-jitsu is effective and that it's a, a great martial art. It's proven uh, all over. And um, it's much more helpful to, to uh, have them learn and have them feel how uh, BJJ can empower them, how they can move another body in a way that they wouldn't have thought is, is possible and um then yeah step by step uh people want um hard roles and that's fun and that's good but as a coach you always are responsible to keep everybody safe um, because yeah but you have a lot of people that are injured um then you also lose customers i mean that's not a a a it's neither a good business model nor is it a a, a good uh, way to to teach in my view yeah but i also think this you know no pain no gain or if you don't i mean it, it happened to myself with my first coach i know that he said to his son like oh when she goes to oxford she's gonna quit jiu-jitsu because jiu-jitsu is not for her no the way how he was teaching was not for me had nothing to do with with the art and when coaches say like oh you know um, if you can't handle this, then jiu-jitsu or wh whichever martial art is not for you. I actually think then that you as a coach are failing and actually trying to blame the student. Because then there's two things happening, right? There's a sort of gatekeeping happening, not even sort of, it's an explicit gatekeeping happening where it's not for everybody. It's like almost saying music isn't for everybody. It's only for these certain people, right? When music should be for everybody, right? So there's gatekeeping happening, but also there's a filtering system happening, a sorting mechanism where you're like, only these kind of people should be able to train. But then the people who are like enjoying getting smashed or think that's part of it and they want to replicate that, then you are creating a sorting mechanism where only the most toxic people are filtering through, right? So then that in itself is creating the cycle of toxic environments. Absolutely. Like we have, we have a funny filter here, for instance. We have like a lot of women. So we're like 50-50, which is crazy for most martial arts schools because usually you only have a few women. And they're also small. So usually when we get new guys in uh, and they roll with them and they get their, their butts kicked, um, either it always hurt, hurts their ego, but either they're like, wow, this works. I need to learn this or they don't come back. So what I also notice that sometimes when I teach and coach, um, with sometimes new students have issues taking, taking feedback from a female coach, then I also tell them, I said, well, if you have issues with that, then this school may not be the right school for you. Like, I'm, I'm not blaming, I'm just honest. I said, like, you know, if you think of what you want and what you're also searching for, and usually either they're like, yeah, this is stupid. Yes, I want this. I come back. 
or you, you don't you don't see them again. And and I think that's also fine because then we also don't get the toxic types that I also don't want necessarily in my school. Yeah. Filtering isn't necessarily bad, but you want to filter out the toxic stuff, not filter in only the toxic stuff. Yes. You you want to be conscious about um what who you filter and and why. And I think uh same holds true about um how how you teach to hook in uh, where we were before. Like um this repetitive cycle of uh, smashing, smashing, smashing is also true for how people teach martial arts because um most uh people that teach they copied just what their teacher taught, how their teacher taught. And they probably copied what how their teacher taught and so on. Um and many don't think about which exercise they do, why, and what's the, the outcome and um, how you w might be able to improve that um, so that people learn in a more optimal optimal way. way. Yeah, I think one of the main mottos of, of the zone is like tra train or teach the person in front of you. So instead of trying to um, push on them how we train or what we like to do, like what, what my A game would be. We try to help them figure out what their jiu-jitsu looks like, what their striking looks like, how they can express their style. And um, that, and it's fun because in our school we have so many different styles. Whereas when we go to also to our head coach San Diego, you can really see that they have this specific style. Whereas us, they they are free to explore. And, it's, and then my husband can say more about optimal skill acquisition, how we do that. Um, but it's really like we hardly teach techniques. We have games with constraints and then they have to figure out their own details, their own ways, how to hold an armbar position or how to finish an armbar instead of us saying step by step how you could do that. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw, Deep Space Nine, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions, like you're hearing now, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, or show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Why do you think that's an optimal model. So um, basically, um, Lachlan uh, Childs talked about um, opti optimal skill acquisition at the Leglock camp we were at uh, in Belgium a year ago. And um, I was curious and I asked him some things and he pointed me to uh, Rob Gray. Uh, Rob Gray by now uh, wrote a book, how, um, how We Learn to Move. and there he describes, um, yeah, the ecological dynamics. So um, he's he's a professor uh, researching um, movement and how we learn to move, and he um, teaches uh, principle and principles. And we took those principles and applied them to martial arts. So um, the old school way to teach any movement patterns is we take them out of context and we practice the movement out of context and then we expect that it magically 
in context reappears. But research has shown that's not how, how we learn. Um, so the common example is uh, dribbling with soccer, dribbling ar around cones. But that's a situation that ne never happens in a game. And it's pretty much the same with, with martial arts where you have, especially in BJJ, you have so many drills on an opponent that doesn't res resist at all, that doesn't move. Or sometimes when you get movement from your opponent, it's something, basically a mistake, and you learn to expose that mistake. But by that, the partner has to do this mistake over and over again. Um, and it's very hard when you learn this way to actually apply the technique you drill in the sparring situation because no two situations are ever the same. Um, so in ecological dynamics, the idea is that when a movement pattern is good for the person, it will automatically emerge whilst um, playing the game, doing the martial art. And um, to direct the students to more optimal movement patterns, you can change the rules of the games or the, the, um, the constraints uh, is the actual term for it. So, for example, uh, you can uh, limit what is allowed or you can set the, the bar for, for um, goals lower. So, for, for example, um, when you teach a triangle choke, you could be like, okay, this is the position for the triangle choke. You don't want to choke the person yet. Just try to hold the position as long as you can. And the other person tries to escape. So then they learn how to position their, their body better. They find little tweaks that help them. And, um, you can set additional rules to, um, improve that they learn quicker. And the next step might be, okay, now you want to finish the triangle from a slightly open uh, position, but you want to get the choke or you start in close guard, mount, whatever, and you want to get to a triangle position. And then you have uh, real life resistance and actual um, um, resistance where you learn to apply uh, the technique. And then when you go to sparring, uh, it's much closer to what you, how you actually practiced and um, you can actually apply it. Yeah, so funny side note, Alex taught the kids, like for a triangle, he didn't have one arm. It's okay. They understood that. And then he said, okay, um, go play with your partner and show me what kind of entries can you think of? Well, it didn't take long before flying triangle started. We didn't teach a flying triangle, but they figured it out because they understood what is needed for a uh, for a triangle and i also realized in in rolling with other people often is that when i would behave slightly different than what they drilled they didn't know what to do usually they could still do it they maybe had to change a grip or something but they would not they wouldn't feel comfortable so so sometimes they gave up a good position because they didn't know how to proceed and with these games no matter how the other uh, how, how your training partner behaves you are figuring out how you can still make it work and Another example of that we had, we started in September a BJ fundamentals course where we 100% taught in this way. So we had one lady, she had five classes. She went to a tournament and she won her first fight. She lost the second, so she got third. But still, she won against ladies that were already training for at least six months. 
And that's just because her awareness of, she didn't know many submissions or anything, but she knew where to place her body. She knew where she didn't want to be. She knew where she wanted to be. And she had just answers. And that's why I think it's so powerful. And that's the most important point coming back to trauma. Um, when somebody struggles with or is healing from trauma, a lot is stored in the body and the connection between the body and mind is often, well, severed. One way to reconnect is through movement. And when you do these sort of games, you let them really reconnect with their bodies because they're focusing on movement. And that is a very healing uh, healing experience for them as well as, well as making them more uh, effective. It's discovery. Exactly. And it's real life um, problem solving because um, you don't get a solution from the coach, but you get a problem from the a coach and you are supposed to solve the, the problem and that's exactly the skill you actually want to want to learn when you learn a martial art right and basically it's playing the whole class it's kind of sparring the whole class uh, which is a lot of lot of fun for everybody um, with drilling you often see people zoning out talking about the weather talking about the weekend whatever um, and they still do their repetitions but it's mindless repetitions and mindless repetitions have zero value so when you put some uh, resistance on and some sparring on uh, people stay focused on what they are doing and they get many more effective repetitions plus you work also with the nervous system so science has also shown that um, if you want people to learn so we say the trauma-informed coaching is a prerequisite for optimal skill acquisition, which means they need to feel safe. Now, when we play games, the stakes are low. So we don't get into this fight, flight, hyper arousal, oh, I need to win. So when people stay in this play mode, they're much more open to trying out new things. They don't mind if maybe somebody passes them or taps them. They're like, okay, that didn't work. Let's see if I can fix this. And that also ties in with other science that says that if you want people to remain um, motivated, they need to kind of feel that 85% should be success and 15% should be failure. Because if it's more, then it's too easy. If it's too much failure, then it is, so to speak, too hard. But when you start with BJJ, I mean, for me, the first months was just only survival, right? So I, don't, I didn't get a tap. So we need to learn how to define success. Maybe um, that maybe I could escape two times before I get tapped. That's success. Maybe I, I could... Um, made one one sweep or something you can kind of do games that also beginners still feel that they are improving that they are successful even though they will still get tapped like typewriters but they realize oh no i am actually improving and in doing that that makes it uh, that keeps the, the nervous system relaxed so they can just the brain can learn more and that helps a lot people also have burnout or super stress or trauma but also people that are super happy um also, this will benefit them greatly. And there's something earlier you said about wrist locks, and I think is a point that we don't want to gloss over. Sometimes there's certain submissions, certain techniques that people got hurt from in the past. Like, let's say leg locks, right? A lot of people approach leg lock teaching like, oh, people are just afraid of it because they don't know it or they don't train it. And it's like, no, there might be people who got hurt from it in the past. So it can't just be like the problem is lack of knowledge. You got to also approach it like the person in front of you. Why are they hesitant about leg locks or wrist locks? Like figure it out because maybe they got hurt in the past from it and then you got to address that. 
you got to at least be cognizant of that. You can't just blame them. It's their ignorance is why they're scared. Exactly, which is again why play play is so important. Because, like, for instance, I just have a, another example to make this point clear. We had uh, Oktoberfest in uh, September, October in Munich, and one of our ladies um, she got assaulted there, and she does martial art, and she also felt um, horrible because she she froze, she totally froze. It was her fight flight, you know, her her response was was freezing, and um, she felt horrible because she's doing a martial art. She's like. Why didn't I fight back? So I first also explained to her, like, that is a normal response. It's a response of your nervous system to keep you safe. And it worked because in the end, you, you know, you got away away from it. Nothing bad happened. So you, it was, it was an okay response. Like, don't, you know, it's fine. But what happened then, somebody grabbed her by the wrist. So then when even another girl, she knows, she trusts you, gripped her wrist, she just froze and she starts shaking. And I saw that. So... I was like, okay, that's something that we definitely at one point need to work on. But first, focus on breathing, getting her back. Then I said, okay, um, next time I gently held her wrist. And that was already, even though she knew it was coming, it was for her already very hard. And she started to freeze. What is important is that I kind of get her back and get her moving again. So it was still hard, but I got her to move again. So she started to, she cut a new neural pathway that even when that happens, she can still move. And step by step, it became easier for her to move. So the threat became less of a, an actual threat. And, she, and at one point, you could kind of override it in the amygdala um, and it wasn't an issue anymore. So also with leg locks, when somebody really got hurt, like for instance, a year ago, I had my ACL reconstruction um, operation, not because of leg locks, but I also was kind of like, okay, with leg locks, I have to be careful. So what do I do? I just play games where the stakes are low, where you just keep moving. Because when you get back into this moving state, that's how you can override your fear response. I guess that's a point I wanted to add on to is maybe it's not trauma from a previous leg lock. I think just from being athletic or living life, we realize the legs are different from the rest of our bodies. They get injured in a way that's harder to heal than other parts of our body and in a worse way than other parts of our body. So there might be just trauma from other things where we realize how vulnerable legs are. They're very strong, but also injuries to the legs are also very different. So I think when people are like, oh, leg locks are like arm locks, like they're no, they're not the same because the scale of injury is completely different. It is. It definitely is. And also, especially with leg locks, um, I mean, it can happen with arms too, but especially in leg locks, we don't have so many nerves in the joints. So uh, we can feel the pressure, but there's no pain before the leg snaps. The pain comes after. And usually we are used with, with most joint locks, first the pain and then the snap. And uh, I think that's why, uh, yeah, we need to be so careful also with, with leg locks. How did off the zone start? Yeah, so funnily enough, during the COVID lockdowns, um, of course, many schools, they lost members, whereas we gained members because of our trauma-informed approach. Uh, we got also like other parents, other people in because we just had some, we just created household packages and stuff. Um, and people started realizing this. So we had other black belts reaching out to us and asking, what are you guys doing? Because I'm losing members, you're gaining members. And so we explained it to a few. And then when more and more people came asking about it, we were like, well, let's make a course out of it because clearly there is a, um, um, there's demand. Let's explain what trauma is. What is trauma? So trauma is 
um, the response somebody has after a specific uh, can be a specific event. So it can be a car crash. It can also be um, just active trauma. It can be complex trauma uh, when you have somebody like um, domestic violence, something that keeps on happening. So there are different types of trauma, but it are events that uh, that make our nervous system so dysregulated that we don't really come back into homeostasis. So a, a metaphor would be uh, when a hare gets uh, chased by a fox and the hare gets away, when the hare is in the safe space, it starts shaking. It gets like the adrenaline out. So it can go back to what we call the parasympathetic nervous system so they calm down, they're calm again and rest and digest. Um, when they get chased, of course, the, they go into the sympathetic nervous system. That means that the adrenaline goes, they choose fight, flight, freeze. The hair chooses flight. So the energy goes to the legs and boom, it can, it can bring itself to safety. Now, almost everybody will experience traumatic events, whether that leads to PTSD or depression. That depends how well you have your, co how, how well your coping mechanisms work. And, um, not your fault when it's when, when you get kind of hung up in this loop um it just means that you didn't get so to speak this 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 the energy out of this kind of stored in the body so sometimes also when something happens it doesn't mean that the next day you have ptsd sometimes you kind of feel fine actually only a month later or so you start realizing that you didn't regulate yourself back to homeostasis so trauma is your body and your mind thinks that even though what happened is already in the past, they think it's still ongoing. And then what is trauma-informed coaching? Trauma-informed coaching is that you help the student in front of you um, coming down. So you, what you do is that when they feel safe, they get out of this fight-flight. So they get into the parasympathetic nervous system, and then they're able to work on... Uh, healing their trauma, for instance, through martial arts, through movement. Because if they don't, if, if you are content, continuously in, in, in fight, flight, you cannot heal. And why is it important for people in the martial arts to be trauma-informed, you think? Because many people with trauma are drawn to martial arts. And also, it can just happen to anyone. It can, it can happen, like we know that kind of 70% will uh, have experienced traumatic events at least like once in their lives doesn't necessarily mean it immediately translate into ptsd but if you have 100 students that that means more or less 70 people that's a lot so even if you say let's say it's a third only but still it's a third it's 30 out of 100 that's a lot and it can also happen maybe that you have somebody with you already for years and i don't know they a, a loved one died it can be traumatic and can mean that suddenly they start lashing out or they are impatient or they just start to behave differently instead of being like, what the hell's wrong with you? A trauma-informed coach would be like, hey, I noticed you're a bit more impatient these days. What's going on? What happened? And it's kind of like you just don't take things immediately seriously. You don't think like, oh, they're assholes to me. No, maybe, probably something is going on. And I just think that you just learn to see symptoms when something is going on better. Uh, you will learn to ask the better questions. So that you also can kind of avoid trauma or explosions of emotion. And you can really, without being a therapist, because I mean, martial art doesn't replace their professional therapy, but you can create a safe space for them where they just can let go for a moment. And when you as a coach understand that, 
I think so many more people will feel so much safer. Also, people that are just stressed from work or had like a shit day at work, um, they will feel better. And nobody is immune to trauma, right? Martial arts already has this idea that anybody can get attacked. If you already have that in mind or you can be paranoid that all these things can happen to you, then why wouldn't they also think trauma can happen to anyone? And then if it can happen to anyone, maybe you should be informed about it. Yeah, I think the problem is that too many martial arts schools uh, focus on competence, meaning that when you are good in martial arts, it most likely won't happen to you. It's, I think it's kind of this assumption. I mean, there are enough also like uh, professional MMA fighters that still got raped because they froze, even though they could have easily kicked the, eyes, the guy's ass, right? So something happened there. And I think that the moment that you focus too much on competence and you kind of, your promise is like when you train with me and you learn martial arts from me, like that's why I hate words like uh, rape prevention or anti-rape. I'm like, I don't think you necessarily can prevent it. But what you can do is give them tools to work with. You can never guarantee that. And especially not when you do sports, sports martial art because self-defense is sports, you focus on different things. But yes, it's, it's, I think that when you focus too much on competence and then something does happen um, on the streets or maybe at home or at work, it doesn't even need to be physical. Um, many people actually get major issues and these, this, this imposter syndrome when they're like, like, like what, what, what our student at one point at first uh, experienced, like, yeah, I do a martial art, but I couldn't defend myself. Why not? So it leads to like victim blaming and self-blame. Yes. Yeah, and maybe also uh, blaming the, the coach um, or the, the martial arts club or whatever and not, uh, or maybe being ashamed and not even um, coming back, reaching out and uh, working through that. So um, sometimes you might even lose people and you don't know why because uh, like with this girl back then, um, the connection was good. She trusted us, so she came back to us and talked about it. But when you are not a trauma-informed coach, uh, you might never see her again and never know what actually happened. That's also true. Like One of the main things of a trauma-informed coach is that you become approachable, that people know that they're safe with you and that they can tell things. I mean, also our kids and youth, if they don't like something, they will tell us. They just tell us because they know that we don't think that they're then assholes or anything. We were thankful for that because, hey, we don't know everything either. And it helps us because how can we change or improve something when nobody tells us? And I think you create this kind of safety, safe space again, where they feel heard and seen and uh, valued. Is trauma-informed coaching something that existed in other practices but was late to the game in martial arts? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in yoga, it's already like uh, way bigger because we know that yoga is a, a bit slower practice, so it helps with um, easing, you know, getting into the parasympathetic nervous system. So it kind of is, uh, I think it was an easy step to make to think like, hey, yoga and, and trauma and form that goes well together, especially when you have breathing techniques and mindfulness, it all kind of goes together. Um, I don't, slowly there's more happening in the martial arts scene in the BJ scene, but there's really not a lot. I think when we started last year of the zone, there there were not I, I, there were not any real trauma-informed programs. I mean, now you have also the Fight Back project that comes a bit more from the striking perspective, but um, Georgia is also adding also BJ to the mix because in the end, it doesn't really matter what you teach. When you understand the frameworks and the principles of trauma-informed teaching, you can apply it to any sport. Now, if you're a coach, what are some signs 
that we should look out for where we might be inadvertently triggering some trauma in a student? So when people have troubles um, remembering techniques, when you are like, man, I already told you like 10 times, when you realize they have difficulties somehow processing it and then also applying it, then my, some, probably their nervous system is kind of overloading. So something is going on that would be one. Well, if you don't like questions, I mean, usually many martial arts coaches hate what if people. I don't mind them at all because actually they are actually very, very useful. But if you dismiss people that ask questions or they ask questions you don't like when you are dismissive, that, that does not instill in them the feeling that they can approach you. That would be one. So I, sometimes I'm kind of like when nobody really approaches you, that's also a sign that maybe a lot is going on in your school, but you don't even realize it because they don't dare to come to you. Um, so I think when you really get hardly any feedback, that's not really a good sign. Um, when people start isolating, when people kind of freak out, kind of when something escalates, that's usually, it doesn't necessarily need to mean like immediately trauma, but at least that something has been going on or they had a really, really bad day. How should we handle that then if they are, let's say, panicking or freezing or crying, something like that happens, right? So it's already too late. It's happened. How should a coach address that? So we have what we call the ABC protocol. And B would be then that part when a first mental first aid situation happens. Um, first, I would make sure they go to a safer spot. If you have only one big mat space, go to, the, to a corner. But first of all, you want to make sure that their eyes are open and you ask them to move their fingers or their toes. You want to get some movement in. And then you start what we call with reorientation activities. So that's already like moving. That's like asking them questions, simple questions. You know, what's your name? Uh, what, what, what day is it? It's very simple things. Uh, you can ask them to hold an object and play with that. You kind of want them to get moving. That's really important, especially when it's a traumatic flashback or trigger. And then take it from there. If it's a panic attack, you want to start with breathing exercises to bring them back there. But if somebody has a traumatic trigger, breathing should come later as you won't access them before. I think that's like the main point. And very important, do not touch them. We often, we often have the, you know, we want to comfort them, right? But you don't know where they are. Like say, if you have, for instance, somebody who got, I don't know, also maybe a male student who got, kicked and punched by a parent, I say something, touching them may not be, it's not a clever idea because you don't know where they are. And also don't ask them what happened because you then you might re-trigger them again back in. You want, you want to interrupt their traumatic trigger in bringing them back to the present by asking questions. How do it, how does it feel? How does the gi feel? How does the, you know, these things like tell me five things you can see, um, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, this, this sort of thing to get them back into the present. So that natural response to touch people might be inadvertently making things worse. Yes. There's one other thing I think is worth mentioning is something a previous guest had mentioned, Dr. Han Ren, and she talked about fawning, where sometimes that's a response to trauma that Again, we might not recognize it might be somebody constantly apologizing for something they shouldn't apologize. And especially if they're the ones that had something happen to them, right? Or maybe they're being bullied or harassed and it looks like they're being receptive to it. And there are people who are receptive to certain things, but sometimes maybe it's not that. Maybe they're just fawning because they're afraid. You know, their mind is like, for survival, I have to get in the good graces of the person 
potentially harming me, right? So people have to be aware that that also is a trauma response and that is also something that could be easily victim blamed. You know, oh, you were doing it. You were asking for it. And it's like, no, that's how they cope with trauma and survival. Yes, fawning is the most tricky one. And often that is really deeply rooted in childhood trauma. So often when they uh, were neglected as children or when there was domestic violence or this, this sort of thing. Um, so indeed, pleasing is their main coping response. That's why I also say that when you have a school and really nobody comes to you and sometimes doesn't have to be hardcore criticism, but just, you know, give you some feedback, that's usually really not a good sign. And uh, indeed, people that apologize too much, um, people that kind of always want to say what you want to hear, um, I definitely, or they're also often the quiet ones, I definitely pay a lot of attention to them too. Do you think self-defense at large, how it's framed, is traumatizing or problematic? I think it's often victim blaming because they kind of say, you know, especially female women, self-defense, it's kind of like, I mean, there, there, some really called anti-rape, or there, I also have seen posters where they're like, you know, if you don't kind of, if you don't do this, then well, it's kind of your own fault. Like it's really, there are some crazy things out there. Um, it depends, of course, on the course and what it does, um, because we also offer uh, women self-defense courses. But what we focus on is how to deal with stress. So we do all kinds of. We don't teach them the perfect technique. We don't focus on that so much at all. We focus about putting them into stressful situations because the, um, the brain doesn't know whether it's um, a scene, whether something we created or reality. The brain doesn't really know that. So when it's uh, aroused, um, you can kind of teach them how to deal with stress. So can you still think under stress? How quickly can you calm down under stress? And I think that is something that you can train that will increase the chance that you will be able to respond in a self-defense situation. But of course, it's never a never a guarantee, but it will it will train them to deal better under stress. I think especially when you do these kind of self-defense courses, it's uh, paramount that you are a trauma-informed coach because you put pressure on, you increase the stress, of course, step by step, but you need to uh, keep it safe um, for every person participating. Um, so you need to, um, yeah, have make them feel safe and build the connection first. Otherwise, it can indeed be um, very triggering and uh, potentially traumatizing for the participants. There are many stories where, for instance, often, I don't know why, but often there are male instructors that are teaching uh, female self-defense. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't know what it means to be a woman. Like, what, why? Like, I mean, Alex is there too, because he's kind of like the good bad guy, but I'm the head coach. It's very clear what my role, it's very clear what Alex's role is. And I know stories of somebody who just like grabbed the wrist of a woman and said like, yeah, get it, come out. And she could not. And for her, it was like so traumatic because she was like, oh my God, I cannot get out. I'm failing. And that was very hard. Um, so I think it's also important to realize that everybody has a different window of tolerance. So when we when we do specific games with our ladies, um, also depending on the day, some weeks they are just, you know, they can handle a bit more than other days that you get sensitive to that because some might give more than others. It just depends where they are at. So I think as a coach, it's important that you meet your students where they are at instead of accepting uh, expecting them to meet us where we are at. Now, how should we deal with people who roll too hard? I think this is a common thing, right? There's a bunch of things. Like you can, of course, um, talk to them directly or 
what we also do is that we give them a a ball in their hands so they can just uh, only use one hand. So there, it's like there, there are always strategies. Like sometimes when I also sense that people are a bit escalating, uh -huh, I just give them a drinking break or I start teaching a new technique or I switch partners. Like so you don't always have to directly kind of call them out. You can also kind of play around with these sort of things. So but off, but other things we also do is that when somebody's using a lot of strength, we just start singing a song because often they're not even realizing it, right? But then they're panting like crazy and, and their red is like as red as tomato. So there are ways to kind of make them realize, make them conscious of it because most people don't want to do it on purpose. Sometimes they just don't know how. And instead of being angry with them, we have to help them step by step to teach them and to make them feel what is appropriate and what's not. I mean, look, it also depends who your partner is, like a tiny person, male or female, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, giving all is maybe not the best way to go. Whereas when you go with somebody your size, you can, of course, give much more, but it takes time. But yeah, strategies, you can you can just give them an object in their hand so they have one hand less. Yeah, it's also when, uh, when you see that as a coach, you see uh, two people rolling um, that are not evenly matched and they are going extremely hard um, you have to interrupt, but you don't like you can uh, call them out directly. Sometimes that's maybe a good idea. Sometimes you can indeed have a drinking break and then uh, talk to them, um, single them out later, and then ask them, "Hey, what was going on? Uh, why did you roll so hard? Uh, is everything all right? Or how did you perceive that roll?" Maybe a more open question, um, and just see, take it from there. Uh, it's usually better to to have open questions, um, and instead of leading ones, and see um, their reaction and and uh, figure it out. So actually using water breaks in a strategic way instead of just thinking of it as like a sign of weakness where we shouldn't get water breaks, or just using it as something like okay, it's just time for a break. You could actually get something more productive out of this. Absolutely, it's about interrupting. I, I think this idea of toughening up by not drinking water is uh, somehow faulty because we need to be hydrated for our brain and body working properly. And uh, training is all about developing our skills. So when we don't hydrate, uh, our brain won't uh, absorb what we are learning. So it won't, training might be not that effective. So I think uh, it's very important to, to uh, have freaking breaks. Now, what about those who have a lot of anxiety about rolling? How should a coach approach this? And how should the student with anxiety approach this? So I think the first thing when you are a student and you know, like, oh, I have, I have anxiety or PTSD, go to your coach. And if you know your triggers, tell them the triggers. You don't need to tell them what happened, but just like what, what may trigger because it helps the coach a lot in keeping them safe. And also be open about with whom they feel comfortable rolling uh, first. Because usually after a while, when they feel more comfortable, then they will also roll with more other people. Then the next thing is, of course, sparring games. So we have very simple games, like that you um, stand opposite each other, feet parallel. You have just your hands, your hand palms against each other, and you just try to trick each other in making a step. But you want to not do that. It's a balanced thing, and you start to feel the body. It is actually already sparring in a way because the, this objective is you want to make your, your partner to make a step. You want to trick them. Um, the next step would be that you try to push each other out of a field. So you increase a little bit 
uh, connection, bodily connection. And that's how you can really step by step uh, build on this. So they also feel that they can do it and that it's still a game. So it, that the stakes are low. We also, in our classes, we kind of have a lot of sparring games. So they are basically sparring without realizing it. And that's a, a way how you can do it. But of course, if I know somebody has, um, I mean, there are different types of anxiety that, you, that one can have, but I didn't always want to pair them up with people that are naturally calm, um, you know, also, you know, can also let them have the moment of winning something. You know, this is also not, not every other student, not every partner can do that. So I'm also very specific who trains with them. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Now, for some people, competing can trigger some strong emotional responses and even trauma. Even if you want to compete, it doesn't mean that you don't have those things happening or that it goes away just because you want to compete. So what are approaches from a coaching perspective and even a competitor's perspective to handle this? Asking questions like, because they, what, what is a nice exercise is when they just have write down everything that they fear what could go wrong and all the things that could go right if they could, could compete. And usually what, all, what they could all gain from it is that list is bigger. So you can, there are some CBT uh, models, some cognitive psycholo- psychological models that you can um, use in, in, in coaching that they, it, it all also goes with a belief. I mean, I am not afraid of competing, but I'm also nervous as hell and like everything, like it's, it's a scary thing. Um, what helps is that when they know that you have their back, that already helps a lot when they feel they're supported and also that they know that you don't care whether they win or lose. That's for you, it's about learning. And that's for you, as you as coach, it's about that they um, widen their window of tolerance, that that is already winning. So if you have somebody who's, who's, who finds competing extremely scary up to the point of traumatic, but they know that for you, it's not about whether they come home with a medal or not, but just that they dare to do that. That, is, that, that on its own can be so empowering because you believe in them. And, um, and of course, being there on the day and, you know, supervising it. And even when it sometimes is that something happens during, but they still did it. And that's how you step-by-step step, can build them up if they're ready to it. I mean, there's also like, there are people at the beginning, they're, it's, they're not ready yet, but step-by-step. Step, uh, that often I find competition is such a great tool for like the next step of, of healing and or also widening your own window of tolerance. I, I think. Um... We have so many uh, tests in, in our life, uh, whether it's uh, school, university, at work, we're constantly tested. And uh, so a, a martial arts tournament should still be fun. Yeah, it's definitely um, more stressy than, than uh, being in the gym. But I think uh, we should t- uh, take as much pressure of our students as we can as coaches. Uh, so indeed, um, but normalize it. Yeah. Normalize it. It's okay to feel nervous. It's okay to feel scared. It's okay that the moment you kind of have to go on a mess that you don't want to. Those feelings are 
okay and completely normal. When you normalize these things, they're like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not, um, you know, weak. That's already so helpful. Do you think it also helps to replicate a competition? Meaning like would a student who does have that type of anxiety, especially performing in front of people, maybe have them do a role where the class watches? Exposure therapy can have many things. Depends, of course, what they find difficult. But that's always always talk to to the student. And if they feel like if they feel safe with your students, then you could try these things. Yes, you, you can. They could also first go with to a competition, not uh, that they don't compete themselves yet, but that they just can feel like what it's like. That they can can watch, uh, that they see um, what the referee does, uh, what the people at the um, at the table do, these kind of things. You can also play that through uh, in the gym, uh, that they know what's happening around, when they should step on the mats, because uh, in the beginning, it's always like, stepping on the mat then the referee sends the person off again uh then they wave but then the the uh, competitor doesn't realize that now he should go on the mat so when you play these kind of things through um or are there for your student and uh, talk them through uh i think these kind of um organizational things also help a lot so they're not taken by surprise by anything yeah, so the bottom line is that they know what to anticipate. So especially with courses or also trainings, when you tell them today, this is what we're going to focus on, then they don't get taken by surprise. And I think that that's also the A from our ABC protocol is like, just be very transparent in what you do. How do we apply some trauma-informed coaching when teaching a kid's class? That's a fun thing. So kids are still way more open than adults. Adults already are like kind of walking so long with baggage. So they are they <laughs> tend to typically tend to be less open about it. So kids, they are still way more playful. So especially when you, I think that we should actually do more play things, more kids classes, type of classes with adults. I think they would actually benefit so much from that. Um, but for kids, uh, you want to keep it active. You want to really keep them moving. That's really what benefits them a lot. And of course, a lot of laughter and, and community. Like when they have a lot of touch with different kids, um, yeah, it, it's extremely playful. And step by step, they realize they can they can defend themselves. They do stand stable. Um, that is huge. But kids are usually, they're actually a little bit easier than adults because they're still op- more open. I think what's very important with, with kids is uh, to have clear boundaries and at the same time um, engage with them, have fun with them, play with them. Because when you as a coach uh, are able to play with the kids, uh, the kids connect to you and when there is something up, they will tell you, they will come to you. Um, usually much easier also than uh, than uh, the adults and uh, also uh, try to keep a good connection with, with the parents. Um, talk to the parents briefly before class, after class, um, because sometimes, um, as also as as coaches, we don't see everything that's happen happens during class, and sometimes the kids tell, sometimes not, uh, but often they will tell the parents afterwards. So then the parents also uh, feel safe to come to you and tell this and that happened, and you can, uh, yeah, watch out for that or um, talk to the kids or. Yeah, help out there. Now, sexual assault in BJJ has been a major issue, a major ongoing issue, I should say. I've been training since the 90s. 
And it's been around since then. It's been nonstop. And it's part of a bigger problem of toxic culture that can create the environment for sexual assault. So how can we as a quote unquote community address this? I think it's very important that um, people don't look away. Like the, the, the coaches we left, the work people, they know it and they found horrible, but it didn't leave. That are still enabling that that just continues, right? So people find it's wrong, but they don't. They it's it's apparently not rewarding enough to go away and go elsewhere. And somehow I'm just still thinking, how can it be a bit more rewarding thing to actually stand up for some principles to keep it all safer? So that is, I think, the reason is the bargain is not good enough to actually. You know, go away with people you connect with that you like because okay, maybe the coach is is toxic, but maybe you know your your gym besties are 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 great. That is that that is one point. Another thing, I think, call it out if you see something like uh, what I like is that to become an ally or an up up uh, upstander. So say you notice, say a guy goes to a woman and you see that she somehow seems a bit uncomfortable, you can just stand there and say, like, hey. What are you? What are you guys talking about? Are you? You know, can I join in? Like it's kind of like a more or less non-intrusive way to kind of check it a little bit out. And also, if you have concerns, go to the to the coach. If, however, the coach is the problem and that is the only one, so there is nobody above this coach or anything else. Yeah, sometimes leaving is really the best statement you can do because when, for instance, there hardly are any women or at least no high-ranked women, that is some sort of sign. I mean, it's not. Um, it's not a guarantee, but it's definitely a sign that something is a bit weird. For individuals, what can they do to protect themselves and their own autonomy in a martial arts setting? I think, of course, informing yourself about what is grooming, what is gaslighting to be able to recognize this. Because when we left our school, actually only then afterwards we realized how bad it was. Like it was even worse than we thought it was when we left. Because when you're so close to it, it's hard to see. Um, what sometimes actually helps is having friends that are not in BJJ or not in martial arts. Because when you tell them stories, for them it's usually easier to be like, what the hell is this? Imagine, would you still behave the same way or put the look the same way at this person if they wouldn't have this black belt or this uh, word title or whatever? Would you still uh, see them the same way? I think that's a very good exercise. Because I think especially in, in the martial arts, we tend to put people on pedestals and worship them like, like heroes and just because they have skills. Um, but those skills shouldn't give them the right to uh, behave uh, like in, in certain, certain ways. So I think we should um, try to imagine, would I allow this person to talk to me like that if they wouldn't have that black belt, for example. Just um, exercise that in our minds and uh, think that's often helpful. And also, would you? what if it would have been your wife or your daughter or your sister? Would you also allow somebody make, you know, treating that like a way? I think, I think often, because it doesn't hurt us directly, we don't tend to care. But if we can indeed have these exercises where we try to imagine what if, it is actually somebody I'm connected to. Would I still be like that? Because, uh, for instance, there was when we left, uh, there was apparently another um, person. He had also a girlfriend, and then she, I think, also told him that 
this coach was trying something with her and he immediately left. But he did that, I think, because it came literally close to home. And when this doesn't get close to home, you're like, oh, yeah, well, um, it's unfortunate. But so I think somehow we need to make them feel it that what it would be like if they would be the ones on the receiving and that they realize I would not want this to happen to me either. There's a lot of idolizing in martial arts. There's a lot of cultish training environments, the cultish affiliations, cults of personalities, and an emphasis on family as both a panacea and a way to excuse everything. I think this is why it's so hard to leave even when you know there's something wrong. Do you have any advice or thoughts about this? Yes, I, I we even have a post about this um, where I say like why I think it's completely wrong to market martial arts as a family because often families are completely dysfunctional and actually <laughs> we, we see that it's completely dysfunctional. So why would you market your martial arts school actually as a dysfunctional family where indeed a lot of abuse takes place because it is happening in the school as well. So I think it's already showing that is not working. I think many people want to belong somewhere either because they don't like their actual, the biological families or this and that. But I'm kind of like, I am not the mother of my students. Like it's still, it's still a business. If they don't like it, they can leave. Like it, I think, of course, there is this, this great scale and I care about them, but I'm not, I, I don't talk in familial terms because we're not family. I'm there to teach them martial art in the safest and most effective way possible and we have a lot of fun that's what i want to do but it has nothing to do with family i agree regarding dysfunctional family from uh, own experience and yeah i think it's important to have a good connection uh to to the people to have a friendly environment a uh, safe environment um that's not toxic and therefore i also don't like uh to to term it as a martial arts family or something like that you want boundaries I want boundaries, yes. I think that's important even for us as participants. We have to think about boundaries. I think boundaries are uh, super important um, because it keeps, it, it's about safety, right? It's, um, if you set boundaries for uh, training, like don't do wrist blocks on beginners, for example, say a boundary, but also um, you need to set your personal boundaries. Um, like, you're, you're indeed not their parent or their child or whatever, and you cannot behave in that way. It's a promise you can't guarantee because will you still, will you, will you still consider them family when they just stop paying bills, but they still show, <laughs> show up? Will you still see them as family? Um, or, you know, um, it, it's a promise you can't, can't guarantee. And that's, I think, why it's also false advertising. Zero boundaries is a quick way to get to cults. And I think that is what cults want is zero boundaries. They like to use the language of family. And just like grooming, the people creating a cult-like environment don't recognize this cult-like. They think those are good things, right? It's almost like people who get in a relationship and it's a codependent relationship. Those signs of codependency, they think those are good things. They think that's romance, right? So there is this kind of like romanticized, perverse way we think about what is healthy that has been normalized for a lot of reasons. I think media is part of that also. So just because the people don't recognize they're creating a cult does not mean it's not a cult. Exactly. Plus this toxic positivity. Like often it's like they don't want drama in the gym, but by ignoring it, you're just 
creating it or it, it will explode way more. Like when you deal with that and address it right away, it can't fester like a wound. So often it's like, yeah, but I don't want drama. Or like often I know many stories that when a woman or somebody else did address a coach or gym owner, it was more like dismissed, like, oh, you know, don't make this, uh, don't create this problem right now. And we see this in the yoga world a lot as well, that we have these Facebook groups. There was one that I also left because I'm like, oh my God, this is like toxic as hell and cult. That anyone that just had some big, it was constructive. It wasn't like, this is shit. It was like, no, really like good questions. It was like, why are you talking like this? Like, why are you, like there was no space for some negativity. And, and, and I find like there's a sliding scale, right? I mean, maybe I I did say something super bad or I did do something that's like actually not okay. It's it, I think it's totally appropriate for them to share that negativity with me. When when you are all like, no, no, we all have to be friendly in a family, positive, blah, blah. When that kind of happens, when you cannot talk about things, then you know it's already quite on big on the roads to becoming or already being a cult. Yeah, the problem isn't the messenger. The problem is the person or the event causing the problem. Yes. Yes, yes. exactly. And often it's like uh, um, people dismiss the message or the messenger or the victim telling the story because, oh, now you bring it up. So you make it my problem and I dislike you for making it my problem. Failing to look at um, actually the person who created that problem in the first place. Uh, which is neither the victim nor the messenger, but the um, the one who uh, was harassing or um, whatever they did. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very big big problem that people look not further than than their nose and um, blame it on the wrong um, wrong person often. Plus, plus what I also think is a big one is what I often also hear is that then you tell somebody's story and then they're like, oh, but they were always nice to me. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> like the fact that somebody's nice to you doesn't mean that person is nice to everyone. And I also think that people also really have to understand that even though you may have worked with somebody for 10 years, you know, they can still do seriously inappropriate stuff. And even if it's super hard to have, if, you have to sometimes you need to have the, un, uh, the uncomfortable conversations and if i if, if i am allowed to be frank so many martial arts schools are like oh we're such alpha males and we're so awesome ripped and all they don't even dare to have a confrontational conversation like how, i mean like how badass are you then when you can't even sit down with somebody and talk about some serious stuff i'm sorry i find that you know i'm like no that's not i think when you dare to have the convers the difficult conversations you keep your school safe that that is what true leadership is regardless of how 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 good how many medals you bring home that is like that are two completely different things just because you're a good competitor doesn't always mean that you're a great coach and leadership is then another aspect of it if you're the coach and the gym owner so i think like if you think you're so badass then well when you realize there's some drama going to happen or happening in your gym talk talk it out Solve it, nip it in the bud. I think there's an overarching pattern, right? Not just with schools, but schools are just replicating something that is happening in society. Yeah. These systems that constantly try to take the blame off of the culprit and put it on to everybody else, whether it's the victim, you know, maybe you're blaming your martial art for having failed you or your teachers 
or the messenger for bringing it up. Everybody, everything else other than the culprit, right? And I think that's something that we've been indoctrinated in and we replicate. And I think a lot of it also has to do with the systems of power who are in charge. You talk about even self-defense. Why is it always like men teaching? And it's like, because teachers are in positions of power. That's usually men, usually white men, right? So taking the blame off of the culprit is also part of that, also part of patriarchy or trying to find ways and embedding it, making it a feature of the system so that those people who are in power, men, don't get in trouble. Plus, in this society, I think we're so indoctrinated that making mistakes immediately means you suck, like, as a person. Like, I think so often what we achieve or what we do is so immediately connected with our identity, who we are, or who we think we are, what your society tells us who we are. So if you cannot make mistakes or or it's not a good thing, you don't dare to do it. And also, we're. This is one thing we don't in our marketing. We don't talk about oh, we teach your kids discipline, because actually, if you think about it, in a regular martial arts school, that just means that the kid just does what you say and doesn't kind of challenge your authority. I don't think that's the type of discipline I want to instill in kids or in, in students. I kind of want to instill that if they want something to achieve, whatever it is, anything, that that they have to understand that. You may also have to do some parts you don't like. And yeah, you need some discipline for that, but not that they can't talk back to me. And I think that's some, often something that's instilled. There's so many flyers out there. Oh, you know, teach your kid discipline. But basically what, the, what, what they're saying is like, oh, we teach your kid discipline. So, you know, the kid won't talk back to you, parents. And I'm like, no, thank you. That's not what I want to instill. It's this military kind of, of discipline. Like you listen, uh, I follow orders and that's it. Again, with the mistakes, when you don't make mistakes, when you don't dare to make mistakes, you won't learn, you won't grow. So uh, mistakes are, are paramount. And I think that's a big problem in, in our culture that mistakes are um, so bad. And as a parent, I don't like anything where they're advertising that they're going to parent for me. It's like, it's my job to parent, right? If my kid is acting some kind of way, tell me. Right. And then it's something I want to address. Leaving it to a stranger. I mean, again, it's just giving too much power. We need boundaries here. I want my kid to get something out of that class. I want them to actually, most of all, have fun. I don't want them to be the ones parenting my kid because I spend a lot of time thinking about how I want to be a parent. Right. So even from a parent's perspective, there's something wrong with that. Absolutely. We had like one time we had this, this, this these parents, they brought their kid. And uh, well, this kid was everywhere. And then in the end, they, they, they we were we got criticized because we didn't discipline the kid enough. Where also Alex and said, yeah, well, discipline, whatever. I mean, their definition of discipline starts at home, right? And also, if I, like, yeah, I can discipline a kid, but that kid is not going to want to come back, right? Because in the end, it's it's about fun, and that you, like, like I said, we have boundaries. We explain to them that basically we don't have many boundaries really, and but we also explain to them the boundaries are there to keep everybody safe. It's not punishment. It's just about that we keep each other safe and therefore can train hard and have a lot of fun. And also, especially for kids, they totally understand that. They are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like they don't feel punished or anything. Um, but yeah, there are many parents that think that we should do the parenting for them. Or even sometimes we have parents, they bring their kids like super early where I'm like, no, I'm not a babysitter. They have to also remember, right? You as coaches, you two are also autonomous human beings. The parents aren't the only human beings with qualia, with human emotions, right? Everybody has that. So that's part of the boundaries too. 
you have to respect me, I have to respect you. We're all human beings here. Absolutely. So tell us about the courses Off The Zone offers. So we have our signature program that's called Thrive Drive. Uh, We launched that a few times a year. The next one will be in March 2023. It's a six-week online program where we meet once a week. And um, it is so a lot is pre-recorded videos. So each week they can go through then like design week about what is trauma. And we go very deep into neurobiology of trauma and all that. Um, but also about discovery, because if you know everything about trauma, but you don't know how to apply it, or when you don't look or you're not accessible yourself, it's kind of hard to apply it. So there actually a lot is inner work in this course. And then later also strategies about safeguarding both physically and like how, how, how do, how can you create and maintain a safe space? Um, so it's six weeks, but it's still like self-paced. So people can go through it on their own pace. Uh, there are always uh, quizzes that you will have to do that I also can see like you're actually going through it. And um, in the group coaching calls, we usually have um, some guest speakers that are like uh, professional or expert on a specific part. So we had also a you know trauma psychological clinical psychologist. We had another therapist who is focused on autism and ADHD. Uh, so we always make sure we get people that can really dive deep into a specific aspect so that we also create a uh, directory. So when you enroll, you're enrolled for life. So every time we launch again, people can pop up again. Um, and also maybe you'd never had anyone with PTC before, but say a few months later, your first student comes, then they can go back in this directory and they can find all the um all the courses or also all the group coaching calls where we dive deep into that. So I want this something that um, will help them, guide them, you know, kind of along the way. And it also is there for every time we get more information out there. Um, and, there and then they have two one-on-one uh, coaching calls, with either Alex or, or with me, that we can really dive deep into their needs, their questions. So where can people find Off The Zone? So we are on Instagram where we are called Off The Zone and also the Off The Zone website where uh, you can learn about Drive Drive. We also offer regular, so uh, one-on-one trauma-informed coaching. So like it's good for athletes who, for instance, want to go in competition, but they feel that trauma or anxiety is, is hindering them. We work with them and this is still in, in the making, but Alex is also working on Grit Grit, which is a, a program really for, you know, for coaches that deal with, you know, that, that teach kids. So we need to dive deep into kids' classes. Because you two also compete a lot and also have competitors, right? Yes. Yeah, we have also some some youth uh, that are multiple times German champions. It's kind of a fun thing. We were never, we're not a competitive gym by design because it was not necessarily our focus. But since we compete a lot, compete a lot and we always tell them like, it's about learning. This is just go out there. We always say, when you have fun, then you already won. And uh, somehow I think you show by example because we go. So they're like, then we go too. So actually in the end, we ended up being, we were pretty, uh, pretty competitive. As a parent, I've noticed that adults are very much like kids as well because it's the brain. A brain is a brain, right? So to your point about adults should do a lot of kid-like games as well. To your point, right? It's just modeling. You model something. So even that leaves an impression on adults as well. Absolutely. I mean, like I am tiny, so I often fight, for instance, often people that are 15 kilo heavier than me. So then we had one, this, this is my, one of my favorite stories. We had this kid, he was six and he was very, he's very small for his size. 
And he really got physically attacked like at playgrounds, severely bullied. And he started then with us. And one year later, we went to this international tournament. And with his gi, he was only weighing like 20 kilos. And there was nobody in his weight class. So the next weight class would be fighting against two, ki two kids that were like 32 kilos, like kind of more than half of his weight heavier. And we were like, do you want this? And he's like, but you do it. You fight all the time people heavier than you. And so we're like, okay, let's, you know, let's do it. And he won. He won. It was amazing. Like when, when he stood on the on the podium, like even though he stood at number one, he was still smaller than than his opponents. But the key for him, it was such a, a boost because they see it can be done. And of course, we supervised and we told him like, you want the back, you know, you do not want to be under. We told the guy, you know, the strategy. And he trusts us. We trust him. And he also knows like, we don't mind. We don't care what, what the result is. And therefore, because they don't feel this pressure, they just kind of always always compete and perform so well. We covered a lot. If what you've heard on here sounds valuable to you, make sure you check out Off The Zone. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you like this episode and you like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program. If you want to train with us from wherever you are, there's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online, also on Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening. Southpaw. Southpaw. Southpaw.